Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I... I want to ask you about something because I know that there's a history of this, but I don't really know much of the history of this. Okay. So the president, uh, sorry, President Trump has has um, a place in Florida, Mar-a-Lago, that he sort of treats as kind of a retreat sort of place. And I vaguely remember something about a Southern White House for FDR, I think. Yes. Am I making that up? Nope, you okay. are correct. But so that, is that a common presidential thing to have a, a second house, a retreat? A, I mean, I know all of the presidents have homes that aren't the White House because it's not like you sell your house when you win the presidency and move into the White House. You're going to have a place to have to go in four years or eight years, depending on your popularity level. So I know that those things go often into trusts or or stuff like that where, or family members move in, or I guess they rent them out as Airbnb. I don't know, that would be kind of a fun thing. But, <laughs> you know, like, oh, I stayed in the president's house. Um, but I know they don't sell their homes, but like, I'm talking about those sort of second home, woo-woo kind of things that I associate with royalty. Is that, yeah, a, is that a modern thing or is that a been around forever or? Well, it's basically a modern thing. I mean, we had a few presidents in the 19th century um, who had, if you will, retreats or places where they went to, but those were typically either government facilities or it was their actual private residence. I mean, listeners, keep this in context. One of the great things according to the rest of the world in the early 1800s about the White House was that it wasn't just the place where the president of the United States worked. It's also their home, right? Right, the residence. Yes. So, you know, the White House is actually broken up basically into two parts an office complex, and then a residential area, right? Um, So, you know, part of the thinking in creating the White House was that we would have a facility that would facilitate the President of the United States being able to do their job because they wouldn't have to leave the building, right? I mean, Think about this, listeners. Or think oh, about, that think would about be this. awesome. Yeah. Sorry, it snowed. I can't get into work today. The presidency will just have to wait. Yeah. <laughs> or, right? I mean, or, that would be hilarious, especially if, it, if the White House was further south and there or, was like a flake of snow. Oh, sorry. Can't come yeah. to work. Or how about the converse, Nia? How would you like it if Cabell Library, okay, had, if you will, a functioning library, but then a wing that basically was the residential area for you and your colleagues. (laughs) 
Well, first of all, I don't know that I'd want to live with my colleagues as much as I like many of my colleagues, but there is a part of me that is currently enjoying the COVID um, commute to work that I have, which is approximately, what, 40 feet? <laughs> one end of this apartment, if it's not even 40 feet, I don't think, from one end of this apartment to the other. So there is, I could see the pluses and the minuses. Like there's sort of a, oh, you never are not at work, which is true of me now in this, in the COVID era, I struggled to separate my, my work life from my home life because they're happening in the same spot. So I assume for presidents, that's a struggle. It is a struggle. Um, it is then, a struggle. But then and, there's the separate idea of, oh, good, I don't have to fight Washington traffic to try to get to work. Also, the danger of that for the Secret Service, poor things, where the president travels every day, having to figure out how to secure that route and make sure that both the president and the passersby are all safe from crazy people who want to blow up the president or do whatever, you know. So I can see there's a lot of dimensions to that that are some are positive, some are negative for having to, but it would be hard to live in this place where you work all year round, I would think for for four years or eight years or in the case of President Roosevelt for like 9,000 years or whatever it was. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, huh. it, 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 and because we are living in, the, in an era of, of a pandemic, um, there are plenty of people and many of you who are listening to the podcast, you may have experienced what Nia just described. Nia and I um, uh, off recording have both, you know, described, you know, to one another, one of the difficulties in this pandemic is the fact that, um, you know, our workspace um, has now intruded onto our, you know, our home space, okay? You know, the place that we could go um, after, you know, working eight, nine, 10, 12 hours at VCU, um, you know, now it's, I wake up, I go to the kitchen, I make myself a cup of coffee, and then basically the various rooms of my house become my workspace. Right. Um, and, and please don't hear us being grumbly no. because it's a good problem to have, right? Because we both have jobs. jobs. We're yeah, grateful yeah, yeah, to yeah, have yeah, jobs yeah. that we can exactly. do from home. Yes. But it is a little hard to well, turn yeah. off at night, you know, because I'm sure you do what I do, which is, so you turn something else on your computer at 6.30 or 7 after dinner, you're watching Netflix or whatever, and then you're like, oh, I better check my email before I go to bed. Oh, there's a question from a student. Let me go ahead and answer that so yes. that they're not waiting, because I don't want to put students through that, and then, but, and then it's two hours later, and you've been, sure. you've been working. Yeah, and, and, and psychologists, you know, have been saying this for years, that most human beings, um, no matter how stressful their jobs, no matter what their jobs are, need to have distance from what they do at work with the rest of their lives. Um, and that most human beings need to take a break. And for listeners, that's the reason why me and I wanted to go ahead in part to do this particular podcast episode, 
and that is we're both fascinated by when and how um, this idea of presidents going to retreats, okay, you know, retreat, if you will, residences or homes or taking vacations, when did it originate and how did it evolve, right? Well, and how has it become a club that you can use against someone saying you take, you take too much time away? I just would put to you, if you have the most stressful job in the world, which I believe the presidency of the United States is, is the most stressful job in the world. Yes. I know that air traffic controllers have a lot of stress. Police have officers and firefighters have a lot of stress. Frontline medical have a lot of stress. I, I'm not saying those people do not have stressful jobs because they do, but they are not in charge of the nuclear football. They are not. They're not considered the leader of the free world, right? Well, and when and it, they get COVID, everyone else in the world panics because, if oh my gosh. If the president can get COVID, then anybody can get COVID. Right. And if COVID takes out the president of the United States, um, and, you know, right or wrong, good or bad, a lot of other nation states rely upon the United States, and in particular, the president of the United States, for their well-being too. Right. Okay. So it's not just the, you know, what's the current population of the United States? 330 million? 330 million, yep. Okay. It's not just 330 million Americans. Okay. It's also a whole bunch of other folks around oh, the world. Okay. It's 9 billion people who live on Earth. Okay. Who are affected in one way or another by... And, and by U.S. Do, presidential decisions. And we do have this strange phenomenon in the United States before we get into uh, some of the more interesting details of how presidents, you know, having retreat homes, vacation homes, how that all evolved. In, in general, we do have this interesting, fascinating phenomenon in this country to where the media and those opposed to a particular president spend an awful lot of time chronicling how presidents take a break, okay? How they right. take a break, okay? Right, and yeah. the thing is, no one works. I mean, I'm sorry bosses who listen to this, especially my boss, I love you. Um, <laughs> no one works straight 40 hours a week in their job without having moments of, I was just shooting the bull with one of my colleagues for five minutes in the hallway. Like, that's a natural thing that humans do. We usually, we are, we should be encouraged. We are encouraged by law and we should be encouraged by good bosses to take a 15 minute break every few hours to take a lunch break, to be sort of, to step out of that, of the job. And I imagine if you live in the White House, it would be really hard to get that That kind that of separation. Time. Yeah, that kind yeah. of separation. And you're never not the president, which means that when you have a casual conversation, and you can't see me, listeners, but I'm putting that in air quotes, what kind of casual conversation can the president really have? Yeah. <laughs> right? He's on guard. 
for saying something stupid or crazy like, you know, well, I think I'm going to invade Mexico next week. <laughs> and then all of a sudden in the Washington Post, there's a headline, President plans to invade Mexico, right? Like, he, there's not that joking, relaxed, almost every lunch they have is a working lunch or a professional lunch of some kind, or they're, or they're going somewhere and having lunch with people where other people can see them. Like, it's, so I don't have heartburn with the going to, I find it fascinating that most of them play golf. Like, <laughs> golf is the sport of kings, though, so I suppose that in some ways that's the, yeah, what, what, and I guess nobody gets to talk to you while you're playing golf. Like, uh, uh see me playing golf, leave me alone. Yeah, I mean, because if you look at modern presidents, um, uh, we know that Eisenhower, <clears throat> Eisenhower played golf. Um, uh, uh, Nixon did somewhat. Gerald Ford played a whole bunch of golf. Okay. Uh, Bush 41 certainly did. Um, and, uh, and as somebody who is a weekend hacker, I'm a, I've played golf. Okay. Um, uh, apparently, uh, Bush 41 would play speed golf. He would finish rounds of golf in like, you know, two and a half hours. Right? <laughs> For okay. people who don't play golf, that's normally a four to five hour thing. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, Bill Clinton played golf. Um, Bush 43 a little bit, uh, though he was actually uh, uh, very fond of, of uh, riding a bike, okay? Riding a bike. Okay. Uh, President Obama played golf. And basketball. Uh, and basketball. And, of course, our current president, uh, our 45th, Donald Trump, plays a whole bunch of golf, which uh, various Do news organizations – Okay, um, have cataloged every single round of golf he's played. <laughs> do, does 46 play golf? Do we know? Uh, Biden? That I do not know. I guess we'll find out what his sport is. Yeah, yeah. He seems uh, like a guy who would bowl. Doesn't he seem like a guy who would bowl? Well, is there I mean, a bowling alley in the, in the White House? Bowling, yeah, there is a bowling alley uh, uh, in the White House. There's also uh, uh, a small uh, movie theater in the White House. Is there a tennis court at the White House? There I'm is. I'm trying to think of the grounds. Yeah, there are tennis courts. Um, and rather infamously, uh, Jimmy Carter was such a micromanager uh, of the White House um, that he occasionally weighed in on how they should schedule tennis matches at the White House. <laughs> wow. Sir, with all due respect, release. You know, who, who had access, how, you know, what should be the hours of the tennis courts, okay, et cetera. Well, but there's a history of this in the United States, and we, we uh, I mean, of, like, there's a gym at the Senate, there's a gym at the House. We try to provide those, those people who work in government with healthy opportunities to take a um, break, to get ex exercise, exercise yes. you know, get a break. But, but I'm also curious about their physical homes, like the, yes, the sort of what I think, okay, no, let me back up. I know that there is Camp David. I don't yeah. know the history of Camp David. I don't really know anything about it except the Camp David Accords, which were worked out at what I suppose is Camp David. 
um, hence the name. And that's actually owned by the government, right? Like that's a that's passed from president to president. That's not an individual's. That is correct. Ownership, right. Uh, okay. uh, the, Are there other things like that in the pantheon of? There have been some presidential retreats that started out as, if you will, private retreats, and then the presidents, after they were retrofitted, to be a retreat for a president, and we're gonna we're gonna get into that in just a few moments. Oh, good, because I was gonna ask you what was involved in that. Okay. Okay, because you know w when a president goes someplace, it's not like you know the rest of us if we go down to the Outer Banks and we rent a house, right? And you know after we turn in the keys on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, in a couple of days the housekeeping staff can tidy up afterwards. Okay, etc. No, when a president goes somewhere for vacation, it's it's like an invading army has come in, right? Right, because the Secret Service checks on all that. Okay, but okay, before we get to that, Camp okay. David is a government is a federal government property. Okay, it was first used as a, if you will, a retreat by FDR, and FDR so liked it. And Camp David, by the way is physically located in the state of Maryland, okay? He so liked it, and it was so rejuvenating for him, his administration actually referred to it as Shangri-La, okay? Um, because um, uh, he so liked it. So in addition to um, uh, the uh, facility, um, he had down in Warm Springs, Georgia, for, uh, for weekend jaunts. Is that the Southern White House? The Southern White House, yes. Okay. Uh, and, they, and they all kind of sort of get names, right? They all kind of sort of get names, um, and we're gonna touch upon some of them. But for weekend jaunts, FDR, okay, like to go to Camp David. It gets renamed Camp David by one of his uh, successors, uh, President Eisenhower. Um, Eisenhower so liked Camp David, uh, he went ahead and renamed it for uh, one of his sons and his grandfather. And not surprisingly, you know, the former military officer Eisenhower wasn't a really good <laughs> I'm going to Shangri-La. Can you hear Shangri him saying it in his very serious, Eisenhower voice. Yeah, no, he would not be, he would not have been able to say that more than once before he was like, and we're going to rename the damn thing. Yeah, 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 right. Uh, um, you know, uh, one of my subordinates, I need you to come up with a list of potential names. Oh, to hell with it. I'm naming it for my son and my grandfather. And that's what he did. And the name stuck. And Camp David, Nia, as you pointed out, um, has been used by pretty much nearly every president since, even those with their own, if you will, vacation homes, still will use Camp David. Because yeah, okay. Bush 43 liked to go to Camp David, I think. Yes, Bush 43 did. Um, and, and, and you already mentioned one of the more famous international accords um, uh, were uh, uh, the, the final negotiations and the signing 
actually occurred at Camp David. The Camp David Accords during the Carter administration between Israel and Egypt. Okay. Um, so, in, correct me if I'm wrong, but Camp David probably is not what you and I think of as like your home in the country where all the furniture is mismatched and you've got you've got what I think of as furnished a la the family, right? Where everybody gives you their well, you could take this dresser and put it down at Camp David. You know, it's not like that, right? It's, no, it's not. I'm sure that there's enough gravitas there that when you invite, oh, I don't know, Sadat and Arafat to come visit, there's still a presidential feel to the space. Yeah, I mean, right? I, I mean, and if it's owned by the government, I'm sure that it's furnished by the government. So it's it, furnished in early government boredom, <laughs> as I like to think of the period, right? The, the, the photos I've seen of the inside, in, in mind you, you know, let's be very clear. I've never been there. I've never been invited there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I don't. I don't know how I would feel if I got invited to Camp David. Yeah, it might have been because I'd done something wrong, really yeah, wrong. Yeah, the, 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 the analogy I was going to use is that would be like, for me at least, being called to the principal's office in grade school, right? Right. One of the few places in a school that you never wanted to know how it was furnished was the principal's office. Exactly. <laughs> okay. I'd like you to come down for the weekend so we can chat. Oh, I don't think so, sir. Um, I have I have a lot of things to do, including run for my life. The um, photos I've seen, the okay, it looks like a presidential retreat. Okay? okay, you know, you know, dark pieces of furniture. Okay, um, obviously functional, but at the same time, it's quite clearly a presidential retreat. It has multiple buildings. I was going to say, it's not just one building, right? No, it's it not has like, multiple. hey, y'all, come on down. We're going to have a picnic. It's not like that. Yeah, many. it's not like how some of us have family members with um, uh, uh, a cabin in the woods. No, it's not. You know, it's, it's not, not a cabin in the woods. Yeah, it's not a cabin in the woods to where, you know, you have to run the water for 10 minutes for it to all of a sudden become <laughs> lukewarm, right? Yeah, okay. no. No, right? And that's the thing. Most historians Nia, identify President James Buchanan as the first president who, you know, explicitly wanted a retreat, okay? And he actually utilized a government, if you will, facility. Um, it was uh, re uh, known as uh, the Old Soldier's Home. Okay, uh, and by the way, this facility still exists today. It's located three miles north of Washington, D.C. Uh, but Buchanan went there, and his successor, Abraham Lincoln, uh, who was president during the Civil War, went there to get away from the White House and all of the, you know, significant decisions he had to make on a daily basis in fighting the Civil War. Those were the first two presidents who explicitly, okay, had the habit, got into the practice of getting out of the White House to take a break. 
Can I just say that I find it mildly amusing, although it, it's very telling, that in 1860, three miles was enough distance yeah. to get you away from all the annoying people who were trying to eat you like a duck, one little nibble at a time. I mean, because now three miles wouldn't get you I don't know if three miles even gets you to the end of the mall. Well, it does, but I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, it's not, but also that's yeah. no distance at all. It, it's but, no distance you know, if at you're all. traveling by foot or you're traveling by horse, three miles is a, a not small amount of distance. And according to some historians, that's why many of our early presidents never left the white house because transportation was so slow and so oh. difficult, okay, that if they left Washington, D.C., to even go back to their, you know, private residence, okay, whether it was in Massachusetts or Pennsylvania. Oh, for Lincoln, Illinois, that's a 10-day train trip. That's, yeah, that's right, okay. So if there's an emergency. And plenty of our early presidents were from Virginia. So, you know, think about, for instance, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, uh, what was oh, it? Oh, Charlottesville is, is heck and gone from D.C. back then when yeah, okay. foot or horse travel is the, or carriage is the way you would go. So that was one of the main reasons why many of our early presidents, though they had less work and perhaps less stress, never left the White House. But... The White House wasn't the White House in D.C. until... What, John Adams, right? Adams was the first president to occupy the White House? Right. Yeah. So before that, it... Huh. Yeah. Well, there, was, there were places in, what, Philadelphia, New York... Yes. ...that were the seat of government. I don't know enough about the history of the White House. Look, an episode for us to do. Um, where the presidents hung out before there was a White House. But okay, so we have Buchanan and Lincoln saying, I'm gonna hike up about three miles and just get away from y'all for a little bit. That, that seems to me like especially a good thing to do in the middle of a civil war, when you're incredibly stressed. Well, particularly in the first couple of years of the civil war when the Confederacy basically had the Union forces on the run. I mean, you know, let's face it. I mean, Lincoln went through, what, two or three generals before he came across, you know, came upon uh, Ulysses S. Grant as an effective, if you will, leader of the Union forces. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you, okay? Uh, I, I actually think we would probably get better performance from many of our modern presidents, if they actually were less workaholics and actually took the occasional break, <laughs> okay? Um, uh, and, I, and I know for students of mine who may listen to the podcast, okay, uh, you know, what I just said falls in the category of do as I say and not as I do, because I am, you know, an infamous workaholic, but nevertheless, Okay, you know, even I recognize with the le low stress job I have as a college professor that if I don't take weekends off, 
or if I don't go ahead and take a month and a half off in the summer, okay, I'm not, I'm not as good at my job and I'm not all that pleasant to be around if I don't take those breaks. And I think, I think many of us could say that, right? Oh, I agree. I think okay. that there's, I think that there's reasons that um, unions and, um, and labor organizers and labor activists fought for one, an eight hour working day, right? The idea that humans probably shouldn't work longer than that unless they absolutely have to. And that there should be breaks in some way. There should be weekends, there should be lunch breaks, there should be vacation. You should get some sort of ability to take a little bit of time away because humans just aren't intended to be. Uh, we, we have not um, gotten far enough away from agrarian culture, which is not a constant eight hour hard pressing blah, 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 every day kind of, I mean, you have to wait for stuff to grow. You have to take care of farm animals. You have to do that kind of thing. But there's also there natural is physical, right? There's cycles and there's also natural physical exercise that helps to relieve some of that stress and strain that your modern office job, I and mean, the president, unless the president gets up and jogs around the the Oval Office, which, by the way, I would pay money to see uh, <laughs> on a regular basis, right? That's a desk job. Yes. Which I, by the way, can I just say as a side note, every time you see the president, there's no computer on that desk. How is that possible? How is it possible that the president's desk does not have a computer on it? Because other people do all that work for the president. Don't you think that's weird though? I'm gonna need somebody to check my email. I mean, I don't know, I'm just saying, that seems very strange to me. But anyway, that's another whole separate issue that we could talk about. Okay, so, so, after, so, so after, after Lincoln. Lincoln after Lincoln, um, uh, 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 and, and, and these are just some noteworthy examples, Nia, right? Okay. Uh, president Grant, um, Ulysses S. Grant, um, um, actually, on a pretty regular basis, um, uh, went to his family home in Long Branch, New Jersey, okay, um, and actually had, um, uh, uh, so, you know, this is one of those situations where, and, and this is one of the themes that we were going to go ahead and touch upon with this podcast episode, um, you know, a number of these presidents actually went to residences they owned, okay, during the presidency for their breaks, for their vacations. Grant was one of the first ones. Teddy Roosevelt, okay, uh, his family had a vacation home in Oyster Bay, New York, but they also had a cabin, for those of us here in Central Virginia, in Pine Knot, Virginia, which is near Charlottesville, okay? And by the way, I believe that that facility uh, was turned over by the Roosevelt family um, to the National Park Service. Oh, okay. Yes, okay. Uh, uh, President Taft, uh, um, uh, he and his family uh, went up to Massachusetts. And one of the funnier anecdotes I came across, Nia, um, uh, uh, 
in the one town that they vacationed in in Massachusetts. Um, it so annoyed <laughs> the woman that owned some of the property um, that she told the president in the Secret Service, um, we're going to uh, need to come up with a divider between the rest of my vacation properties and what the president and his family want to use because we don't like the traffic and the distraction <laughs> that occur that occurs when the president visits. <laughs> which, which we're going to get to, right? Because mm. what goes into a presidential visit, we'll come back to that yeah, in a moment. Yeah, in just a moment. It's not the bucolic sort of me and the wife are heading out to the woods for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Like, no. Yeah. You know, I, it's, it's it, not that. It, it is. It, it is an it, undertaking with a big U. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the analogy that comes to my mind, it's like a small army invading, right? Yeah. Because it's not just the president and the first family, no matter how big or large the first family may be, right? It's White House staff, right? Um, so you got the chief of staff, you got the deputy chief of staff, you got the press secretary, you got the White House communications director, right? Anybody that the president wants to meet with on vacation. So there's probably going to be somebody from the National Security Council. There's going to be the CIA officer who gives the president their daily briefing. You got the press corps. Okay, the press corps, the White House press corps goes everywhere the president goes, right? So, I mean, at any point, there's going to be, you know, 30 to 50, you know, members of the media that are going with the president. Then you got the Secret Service, right? I mean, it's not like threats against the president end because the president's on vacation. <laughs> Otherwise, presidents would just stay on vacation. Vacation, right? Okay. Well, and I'm assuming that all of those people have to be fed. They have to have a place to sleep. They, yep. they come in vehicles now. They come in vehicles before they came on horseback or carriage. Um, but anyway, you still have this huge, well, and even in, in the time of Taft and, and, and those guys, you don't have the press corps, but you have all that other stuff, plus all of the sycophantic people who want to who want to meet with the president when he's away from the White House that he either has to fend off or meet with. They plus are. his friends. Like, hello, what's vacation without without saying, all right, let's all get a house down at the beach and let's all go down and hang out together. And they all have to be vetted. They all have to be vetted. Right. Then you got the infrastructure. Okay, the infrastructure has to be changed to accommodate the needs of the president. So, you know, it can't be bugged. It's okay. got to be safe from attack. It's there's got to be extra phones, right, for him to make there's private phone calls, computer and satellite uplinks. Okay. Um, right, because if the White House is bombed while he's gone, this becomes the White House. That becomes the White House. Whatever this right. place is, it's kind of like 
Air Force fill in the blank, right? Whichever yes. like Marine one or boat one or Air Force one, they're all, they're that thing when the president is on them. This is essentially the White House when the president is there. And, 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 and by the way, Nia, you, 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 you just said something that um, uh, uh, sparked um, another thing that I found in my research. A number of our presidents liked to go boating. FDR, for instance, loved to be on a boat. Kennedy and loved to be on a boat. Bush 41. Bush 41, right? And for many of our early presidents, they would take boat excursions. So the boat would end up becoming a mobile White House, right? You had to have enough births. Okay. <laughs> so, so if Joe Biden liked to go RVing, his RV would be a would be a little mobile White House. Would be a mobile White House, right? <laughs> and there would be a caravan okay, of other that would be awesome. Other recreational vehicles. Right? <laughs> it would look like one of those convoys from the movies in the seventies, yes. right? Like. What are all those caravans going down on the, why are some of them black and going faster than the ones around the one in the middle and, oh yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so this is a massive undertaking, okay? And I still, you know, I hang my hat on this, this analogy of an invading army. Because of yeah, the, for the neighbors, hey man, we were just here on vacation, like, <laughs> and now we can't walk down this road to the beach because we're getting stopped by the Secret Service who's asking us who we are and seeing if we're armed and if we're some kind of terrorist. And I'm like, not a terrorist, I'm just on vacation. Like that would really ruin, that could, I could see her point that that would really ruin this sort of bucolic, if the point was for you to get away from your, okay, wait, now let me back up. <clears throat> I doubt that any of these places are in poor, like, Today, tricked out neighborhood, you know what I mean? Like they're in today, no. wealthy upper end. Today, no. But as recently as uh, President Hoover, the president right before FDR, okay? Hoover uh, 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 liked a camp. Uh, again, it's pretty close by to where we live, okay? Um, uh, and I'm gonna mispronounce this, uh, Rapidan. Uh, which is in uh, the, um, now it's, it's part of uh, the Shenandoah National Park here in Virginia, okay? Um, and, and it was, by all accounts, very rural and rustic, okay? Until he got there. Until he got there, okay? And again, it got, you know, so retrofitted, okay? Um, um, and one of his predecessors, Coolidge, okay, uh, went to Black Hill, South Dakota, okay? Yes. He went there so often. Uh, this, again, is one of, the, one of the great anecdotes that I found in my research. He went there so often that the nearby Native Americans made him an honorary member of their tribe. Wow. Well, in, in fact, if you can find this and put this up on the research guide, there is a famous photo of Coolidge in Native American attire. 
okay, Calvin Coolidge. And it's a pretty famous photo, and I think you should be able to go ahead and find it and put it up on the research guide, okay? Um, but after FDR, okay? Wait, yeah, Wait, so ahead. Coolidge and Hoover would have been traveling by car. Yes. Right, because yeah. even though we didn't have the interstate highway system, system we yeah. don't get that till later. Yeah. We do have cars at this point. Yeah. And they would have traveled, so they could have traveled further, hence being able to go to South Dakota. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if you were on foot or on horseback, that would have taken 9,000 years to do. Yeah. And I mean, and even with a president and, and like train, FDR, I yeah. guess. But even it, with a president like FDR, okay, um, uh, even though air travel had become much more commonplace, FDR traveled a lot of places on rail. Okay. okay? So uh, the, the infamous Southern White House, okay? Um, yeah, uh, oh, that's right, they had train tracks that yes. went. Yeah, yeah. Is, do you think the part of that was his polio? Was just uncomfortable for him to, I mean, it would allow him to get up and stretch and do things that he might not be able to do. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and also too, I mean, different expectations. I mean, we're still talking about a generation of Americans um, that were somewhat skeptical of uh, air travel. Um, and the fastest way to get from point A to point B was still railroads. I mean. Hey, Augie, can I tell you a secret? What? I'm skeptical of air travel. Uh, I and I would go by train anywhere I could go if they would, if they would let me somehow go to Europe by train. Okay. I would never get on another plane. But you and I, well, I mean, hey, you don't like air travel. Uh, I don't like to be on boats. I don't like uh, the water, okay? Yeah. But on an airplane, okay? Um, I've written conference papers, okay, <laughs> flying on, <laughs> on planes. Um, I've read books, okay? Uh, heck, I've met a couple of my friends uh, flying on uh, on planes. Okay, I just sit there and silently weep and hope for it to be over. Um, I, I feel very comfortable on planes, but you get me on a boat, okay? And all I keep on thinking is um, uh, the boat's going to capsize, um, it's going to sink, and we're all going to die. <laughs> well, okay then. <laughs> I think it's fun. Once I get on a boat and I'm out beyond the shore, I recognize that there's no saving myself now because I can't swim further than I can see. <laughs> so I guess it's I guess it's all over. I might as well enjoy the buffet. Bye. Okay. So but, I mean, FDR in so many ways as a president, okay, is a kind of sort of line of demarcation because pretty much every president after FDR um, ends up finding, if you will, um, a retreat place, and it's either their own pride that, that they own or that they have friends who give them or let them borrow a place for a retreat. So Truman loved Key West, okay, uh, Key West, Florida. Um, um, and the place uh, that he used down there actually got – uh, uh, became known as the Little White House because he went there so often and they so, you know, and they so had to retrofit it because, again, you're talking about, you know, Truman and nuclear weapons, right? Right. 
Um, Although Key West is beautiful. I totally understand. Oh, hey, yeah, I've been there. It's, it, it's great. Um, he loved it. Um, Kennedy, um, his family, very wealthy. Uh, they had a vacation spot uh, in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Um, they have a they have a compound, don't they? That's a bunch of houses and yeah, it's a huge compound. Yes, okay. LBJ, when he was still in the Senate, Senate Majority Leader, bought a rundown farm, um, spent a whole bunch of money renovating it, and basically uh, that's where he went uh, on his retreats. He went to the uh, family ranch. I said it was a farm. It's a ranch, okay, um, uh, in Texas. Uh, Nixon had a couple places. His first term, it was Key Biscayne, Florida. And then he went ahead and bought a home in San Clemente, California, which ended up becoming the place where he retired. Okay. Is that what we call it when somebody resigns? They retired? <laughs> <laughs> self-imposed retirement okay okay i was being diplomatic where he was exiled yeah, he was exiled, okay. right? Okay. uh and carter. that's where so okay yeah sorry you were going to say something about carter well carter basically did what uh lbj did um um for those uh, listeners who didn't know this before jimmy carter got into government service public service um, his family owned a huge peanut farm. Yep, he was a peanut farmer from Georgia. That's right. <clears throat> um, from Plains, Georgia, okay? Uh, the man <clears throat> from Plains. Yeah, the man from Plains. Um, and it's actually referred to as the Carter Compound, okay? Because it had multiple houses, okay? Um, I'm assuming that that was his siblings and his parents and sure and in 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 uh the way farm compounds tend to work in the south we don't think of them as compounds but they actually are if you think about the fact that a continuous piece of land is owned by one family on which many houses and farms run within that greater i mean technically my parents live in a compound in the sense that uh, my stepbrother is on the adjacent land. His son is on adjacent land. So, like, if you think about the whole property, it's probably 40 acres, but it's not owned by any one person. It's owned by the, by all the different people who live there. Well, and, and, it's just and that it, all the land touches each, it's all continuous. And you also have various structures to house um, the farmhands when you need to harvest the crops. Right. Okay. Although in our case, not working farm anymore, but yeah. yes. Yeah. It used to be that, yeah. And I'm assuming that when they say things like the Carter compound or the big ranches that a lot of the presidents have, I don't know how many of them are actually technically working ranches in the sense of we have 3,000 head of cattle and we're running them off, you know. Well, LBJ's was still a working ranch. Okay. And of course, since we're talking about LBJ, he would proudly boast, okay, the number of cattle and horses that he had on his 
parking branch. Okay. <laughs> okay. That makes sense from, from I mean, all, all I know of his personality. Yes. Okay. He, he had a personality like his home state, just as big, right? <laughs> okay. And, 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 and I'm not being critical of LBJ. I'm actually saying it. Uh, In a loving way. Yeah. He, he, he relished his, you know, huge personality. And his stature. Sure. He was a big. Liked being tall. Yep, he, he was big. So, uh, Reagan, so okay. Uh, Reagan had a ranch, uh, Rancho del Cielo, okay? And uh, I know that, I, I don't really remember presidents very much before Carter. I mean, I have a vague memory mm -hmm. of them, but they're not really. But Reagan starts to be one that I have in memory. And he, I remember the press taking pictures of him at the ranch. He was quite the writer, like he could. Yes. And part of that was that he had written in films, right? When he was younger, yes. yep. he had been in all these Westerns. And so he was. Yep, he wrote um, horses in a number of films. Um, and, and he was doing that even in his presidency and even in his older age. Yes, okay. Um, there are numerous photos of of uh, him splitting wood and fixing fences, okay? Right, um, yes. Yes. Yeah, same with um, Bush 43, who liked to seem to do a lot of physical. Yeah, you like to do physical labor. Cut down trees and drag things around and yeah, uh, cut back. stuff like that. Yeah, cut back uh, brush. Uh, Bush 43, it's the Prairie Chapel Ranch in Crawford, Texas. Yep, okay. Crawford. Okay. President's going to Crawford. Yep. That's right. Uh, Bush 41, uh, you had another compound, Walker's Point and Kenny Buck Point Port, excuse me, Maine. Okay. I have to admit that I confuse Kennebunkport, Maine and Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. I shouldn't because they're very different places. Yes. But I think of them they're somehow they're they're tied together in my brain i suspect because of the boats because they were both yes very much what i think of as sort of what wealthy people do on long island right where they go out and they have a house that overlooks the ocean and they have lots of boats and they go and do lots of boaty racing and that sort of thing and with most of the modern presidents with the exceptions of clinton and obama um, we're talking about individuals with usually a significant amount of family wealth uh, to where they actually have vacation homes, right? Uh, or even if it's their uh, main residence, their, their idea of a main residence, you know, the Carter compound, right? You know, um, or the LB, big ranches. Okay, LBJ's family ranch, right? Yeah, I it's mean, not a it's not a ranch like it's a fourteen hundred square foot ranch house like you would think yes. with three bedrooms. No, no, no. No. It's these enormous yeah. multi room, multi bedroom, multi bath. You know, so some, you know, so some of the complaints of the vacation property owner with the Taft family, yeah, those don't exist. Okay, because when you have a huge compound that is 15, 20, 25 acres, okay, the invading army that follows the president 
is less of a, if you will, a concern. <laughs> yeah, I can see. Although I'm assuming that if it was a small enough town, like you're talking about Key West, that you could still have that feel of sure you've been yeah. invaded because yeah. yeah, there's only about 200 of us that live here full time and the rest of it is tourists. Um, but I'm interested in what you just said about Clinton and Obama. Okay, so Reagan, I assume, made money in the movies and, and, and sort of and, built up wealth, or did he also come from money? He didn't come from money. Okay. Okay, uh, he made a lot of movies, he made a lot of money uh, in Hollywood, but when he stopped being a, you know, uh, a sought-after actor, he became a spokesperson for a number of corporations, including General Electric. And that's where he made a lot of money, and that's how, where he learned how to give speeches. That's what they say about sports people, too, right? That you make your money from the endorsements, not from the sport. That's right. For the yep. most part. Although yep. I would argue that now you make a lot of money from either one. But, okay, so he came to the White House having money. We know that the Bushes came from money. We know that FDR came from money. Did Nixon come from money? Uh, no, not really. LBJ okay. did not. Uh, LBJ, um, just so let's put it this way, a lot of sweetheart land deals. <laughs> okay. ah. yeah, right? I mean, and again, this is, and this is part of the criticism, even with Clinton and Obama, where they vacation are places that most Americans, okay, could never afford would probably never dream of vacationing, right? You know, you know the right the, a place you know, that would cost you three thousand dollars a night. You and I are never going to. Yeah. We could go in on that, and we could share a room for about a half a night. An hour, right? And then we'd have to be like, "Oh, that's it. We're done." Because and that's part of the criticism. And then this is where you're going with this. Many of our recent presidents, okay, are wealth were you know come from wealthy families or, you know, made significant amounts of money. But even presidents like Clinton and Obama, okay, who were not born wealthy, you know, they were not born with a silver spoon in their mouth, right? Okay, you know, by the time they became president, they had friends who were wealthy and were quite willing to let them you know, um, borrow <laughs> their vacation homes when they wanted to take a break, when they wanted to go on vacation, right? But that, that brings up a question of unfair access. Sure. Those people having the presidential ear or the president owing them a favor. Remember how we let you stay in our house for free down in Florida in our multi-billion dollar mansion? I'd like to talk to you about a little bit of tax relief, or I'd like to talk to you about offshore gas so licenses or whatever. When Obama was vacationing with his family in either Hawaii or Martha's Vineyard, okay, um, you know, in zip codes, you know, where the, you know, per capita income of most of the residents, okay, again, is far greater than most Americans, you know, the, the, the common criticism was, hey, wait a minute here, okay? Um, it's one thing for the president to vacation. It's quite another 
where the president is vacationing, okay, in a lifestyle, in homes, with people, okay, who are far different than the rest of us, and as you just pointed out, okay, now have access, okay? Um, you know, one of the things we joked about before we started recording is, you know, Joe Biden ran for the president as a man from Scranton, PA, okay? A scrappy, a scrappy man who pulled him up by his bootstraps, and that may be true. True, but he hasn't but been that way for decades. <laughs> 50 years. 50 years he hasn't been the scrappy guy from Scranton. I mean, okay. So it, it's a, it's it's interesting. It plays back into how present how can how um, campaigns present the candidates as these sort of men of the people. Because nobody wants to say, yeah, I'm an aristocrat born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Like that's. Yeah, I mean. It's not something they want to say because they think that the American people will reject them for that. It, and, and I remember one of the campaign themes for the Clinton campaign in 92 against Bush 41 was that Bill Clinton, okay, was born to a single parent, poor, Hope, Arkansas, okay, where, whereas he was running against uh, the son of a U.S. senator who had spent pretty much his entire life uh, bathed in the, you know, the, the warm blanket of wealth, Bush 41. And that it, was a theme. Is it Ann Richard? What did Ann Richards say? He was born with a silver foot in his mouth? That's right. Okay. <laughs> former Democratic governor of Texas, okay, uh, who gave a, an infamous Democratic National uh, Convention speech um, where she just went after Bush 41, and for that matter, the Bush family. Right. Okay, the Bush family, okay? Um, and, 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 and this is, a, you know... Although we're not singling him out because that wealth is not an uncommon... Characteristic, wealth. yeah, characteristic, right. yeah. A lot of people in Congress are wealthy. Oh a my lot goodness, of people yeah. who serve in those upper echelons of the government, who serve in appointed political positions or who serve as ambassadors or who serve in the Congress, they're wealthy people. They run in wealthy circles. Yes, and they have you most and of I, their lives. Right, yeah. that you and I do not have access to. Yeah. And that's just, so... Part of me thinks that the United States government should have maybe a couple of more places besides Camp David and say, you don't stay with France. No, yeah you, yeah. you go to where the government owns and we will make sure nobody messes with you while you're there so you can actually vacation. But we take out this, this question of sort of access by the uber wealthy or access by people who have that kind of potential influence. And it would also go ahead and uh, emphasize that you're taking a break, okay? You're taking a working vacation, right? Because if right. you're at Camp David, you could still be doing work, okay? But if you're going down to a golf resort in Florida that you own, <laughs> okay? Well, you know, like the current president, 
okay? Uh, you know, the headlines write themselves. Right. Okay, the headlines write themselves, right? Well, and then you would take out all that question of, of how does that financially benefit yes. the incumbent, I mean, the, yes. the, the current right. president, you know, or like you would take out all those questions because if it were owned by the government, you would be paying rental fees on anything or, you know, hotel rooms or it wouldn't be like that. It would just be like, no, y'all go to this place because we already own it. We own it. It's already set up for presidential use. The Secret Service has already, if you will, uh, planned for and has already right. provided security there. Um, we know it's we know it is cap it is a spot that is capable of meaningful government government work being done if an emergency or crisis does occur because it's already happened there right right um and then it cuts out questions like you mentioned in regards to access you know who are these people who are giving presidents like clinton and obama a home and how is it that bush 43 okay, it, uh, could uh, own a ranch, okay, a well, you know, a well-accommodated ranch, <laughs> okay, um, you know, etc. I mean, a lot of the questions that we have raised would get addressed um, and would bring the focus back to why presidents should take a break. Right. Instead of and we would build and, that in. Yes. We would build that in as a country. Yes. We would say, no, 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 we want you to have a place that's safe, that you can go and exercise, that you can go and sleep if all you want to do is sleep, right? Like you can go and do those things on the American dime. Because really, in the grand scheme of the financial world of the government, it wouldn't cost that much money. And then, and I'm not gonna, I'm not trying to be ugly and end on an ugly note, but we also would not be upgrading private property, which is what we're doing when we do it to a residence that does not stay within the, the government's purview. Yeah. Like all of the upgrades that were done to all of these places when people visited, those benefit the, benefited the owners, whether they were the ex-presidents or the, or the current folk. So, yes. I mean, the current owners. So we would also get out of that business too. Okay, well, so you and I need to build a retreat and then sell it to the government. <laughs> are, we, are we decided that's what we're doing? Yeah, I mean, you know, hey, I mean, uh, well, or, or, or the other thing, um, you know, either one of us needs to become president. Um, so then we can go ahead and debunk all the criticisms that you and I and others have raised. <laughs> about how presidents go on vacation. <laughs> okay, I'm in. I'll run. All right, thanks, Augie. Thank you, Nia. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse.
As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.